Yeah, the Bible readings, Luke chapter 22, verse 66, to chapter 3, verse 25. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And then and they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teachings. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed him and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found him... In him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Thank you, Inika, for reading that, that, text, that text for us. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Tom. And Jesus describes the events leading up to his death as 
the hour where darkness reigns. So as we grapple with the events of this hour, um, I think we need God's help. So please join me as I pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, thank you for your life-giving word. By the power of your spirit, may you help us to know and love you more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. On the evening of February 1st, 1933, a 26-year-old German theologian and pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer gave a radio address entitled, The Younger Generation's Altered View of the Concept of Führer. Bonhoeffer publicly criticised Hitler two days after he was elected as the Chancellor of Germany, and he warned his listeners about idolising a leader who could turn out to be a misleader. But the broadcast was cut off before he could finish his sentence. Bonhoeffer was now well and truly in the Nazi crosshairs. At one point, he was outlawed from speaking in public for fear of being an insurrectionist, a revolutionary who would lead the nation away from Nazism. This, however, did not deter Bonhoeffer from continuing to faithfully preach the gospel and stand up against the Nazi regime. He later worked as a double agent inside the German intelligence in which he provided valuable information to the Allies and helped many Jews escape. He also became a part of a plot to overthrow and assassinate Hitler, an act of high treason. On the 5th of April 1943, he was arrested and spent the last two years of his life in prison. He was charged for associating with the plotters of Hitler's assassination attempt, and this eventually led to his execution two weeks before the Allies captured the prisoner of war camp that he was in. As we reflect on uh, the history of these events, I think it's clear that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, although guilty of subverting the Nazis, of trying to overthrow them, was not guilty of treason. Bonhoeffer's allegiance was to God and to the German people, not to a, a fascist regime. Like many others from this period in history, his imprisonment and death were a perversion of justice. In our passage today, Jesus is on trial before Jerusalem's elite and is being charged with treason. Jewish law is very clear about the process for these proceedings. Deuteronomy 25 verse 1 says that when people have a dispute, they have to take it to the court and the judge will decide the case, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. If Jesus is innocent of the charges brought against him, he'll be set free, he'll be let go. But if he's found to be guilty, he'll be condemned to death. Our 21st century culture is passionate about justice. You might not be surprised to hear that our society is governed by the principles of innocence and guilt. And so when we read Luke's account of Jesus' trial, I imagine many of us are closely examining the evidence presented to see if justice is being carried out or if, like Bonhoeffer, justice is being perverted. Is Jesus guilty as charged? Are the accusations against him credible? As we explore this big legal and theological question, I also want to ask a more personal question. 
As Inika read the passage, many of you were probably rightly appalled by the actions of those involved in this trial. How could they treat Jesus like this? How could anyone ever be so blind and so evil, so blind to what's right in front of them? It's Jesus. Surely I would never do something like this. WBC, who do you relate to in this passage? Jesus? Or are you more like those accusing Jesus? As we work through the passage, now I want to ask, how are we like those who condemn Jesus? How are we like those people who are bringing these charges and condemning Jesus? It's a scary and humbling question to ask, but as we explore the charges brought against Jesus, I think we'll discover that we, including myself, are more alike Jesus' accusers than perhaps we thought. To explore these questions, we're going to look at the passage in three sections in which Jesus is trialed by three groups of people. In each section, we're going to ask those two questions. Is Jesus guilty of the charges? How are we like those condemning Jesus? I encourage you, if you have a Bible, uh, to open it to uh, Luke 22, verse 66, and follow along with me. So firstly, first point, Jesus is trialed by the Jewish leaders. Reading from verse 66. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Is Jesus guilty of being the son of God? In verse 66, we're introduced to the council of the elders of the people, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. You might have heard them uh, collectively called the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jewish people. They are fundamentally concerned with faithful observance to Jewish Old Testament law. And they're supposed to be the ones who are faithfully carrying out God's will by helping God's people to know, love, and serve the Lord. Yet, they are the same same people that Jesus foretold of rejecting him in chapter 9 and 17 of Luke. The Gospels tell us that these groups have been seeking Jesus' demise for quite a while now, so this scene has been building. The sun rises after a night where Jesus was likely held in the courtyard of the high priest and then brought to the council. I want you to imagine what it would have been like for Jesus, what he would have felt like in this moment. Try to picture it. He's in pain from being beaten up by the guards the night before. He's been mocked all night as well. Physical, emotional pain. The disciples, they have all scattered. And Peter has just denied him publicly. And Luke recounts that Jesus looked back at Peter when this moment happened. So Jesus has physical, emotional pain. He's alone. He's surrounded by the Jewish leaders who, they're supposed to be God's appointed leaders. They are but they're acting like a pack of vultures, waiting to devour Jesus. They're encroaching on him. 
It's a pretty grim picture. And something you might notice as the trial moves along is that Jesus becomes a more passive participant in his own trial and sentencing. And I think it's reminiscent and fulfilling of uh, Isaiah 53, verse 7. Isaiah 53, many of us know, the prophesied suffering servant in 53, verse 7 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus is silent throughout most of this passage, but the single constant in this in this, uh, in this narrative is the active presence and voices of the Jewish leadership. They act and speak always as a collective unit in Luke's account. So that brings us to the first charges laid against Jesus. And here we have, I think, what is the weightiest charge against him, being his claim to the Messiah. Now we know from Luke chapter 9 that Peter declares this truth and warns the disciples not to tell anyone. The Jewish leaders, they are furious because they believe this is heresy. Deuteronomy 13 tells us that false prophets are going to be put to death. That's how you deal with them. And so it's no surprise then to the readers of Luke that the Jewish leaders are concerned with one issue, Jesus' identity and his status before God. His claims to be the Messiah and then the mass following the people that are coming to him, that's putting the temple establishment at risk, risk of losing the support of the people. So the Jewish leaders, they will do anything at this point to get rid of Jesus. He then goes on, Jesus goes on to basically claim to be the Messiah by declaring that from now on the Son of Man will be seated at God's right hand. Many of you will know this is a reference to the prophesied Son of Man in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, who will be worshipped by all nations. He will have power and authority. This declaration prompted the Sanhedrin to ask if he was claiming to be the Son of God. Jesus' response then is heard as an affirmative and only convinces them more of his supposed blasphemy. So, is Jesus guilty of being the Son of God? Well, yeah, of course he is. However, he's not guilty of blasphemy because he actually is the Son of God. He's actually God's chosen Son of Man who was prophesied about. Which leads us to our next question. How are we like the Sanhedrin? How are we like the Jewish leaders? There's a tragic irony in this passage. The Jewish leaders, they are provided with all the evidence they need to recognize Jesus as the Son of God. But failing to believe this, they interpret the evidence, this evidence, at his expense. In verse 67, Jesus tells them that even if he straight up told them who he was, the Jewish leaders would be incapable of believing. We know from the Gospels that Jesus gave the Jewish leaders more than sufficient proof of his authority and identity on multiple occasions, but they are blinded by their own selfish views of God's purpose, and they're incapable of grasping and accepting Jesus' true identity. Friends, how often are we blinded to the identity and the authority of Jesus because of our own sinfulness? As Christians, we have received the Holy Spirit and we've had our spiritual eyes opened to God's revelation in Jesus. Yet we still 
so often fail to love and serve him as we should. And that's because we have not fully embraced following Jesus in every area of our lives. I want to ask, what area of your life do you need to submit to Jesus? For me, I really struggle to recognize Jesus' authority in times of stress. I often either worry or put things off because I find them just too overwhelming. In reality, I'm not recognizing Jesus' authority as the Prince of Peace and his identity as my rock and my helper. So friends, I'll ask again, what area of your life do you need to submit to Jesus? That's point one. Point two. Jesus is trialed by the Roman rulers, reading from the beginning of chapter 23. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payments of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he'd heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Is Jesus guilty of being a king? Jewish lead, the Jewish leaders, they had no legal power to discharge a death sentence. So they had to bring their case before Roman officials. Pilate, who we meet here, is the governor of Judea. He's known from Jewish sources as inflexible, a blend of self-will and relentlessness, whose administrations was marked by briberies, insults, robberies, outrage, outrages, torture, frequent executions without trial, and endless savage ferocity. I think you get the idea. Not a good dude. So, but being a Roman official, Pilate was, he wasn't gonna, he wasn't gonna be concerned with any charges against Jesus that had to do with Jewish law. The Jewish leaders and, and the Roman authorities weren't exactly best buds now, were they? Therefore, the charges here in verse two, they're, they're cleverly massaged and disguised to show treason against Rome, to show that Jesus is trying to commit treason, to usurp Rome, appealing to Pilate. So, and we know that Jesus doesn't oppose payments of taxes to Caesar from Luke chapter 20, so that's just a blatant lie. Messiah, meaning the promised Old Testament king who would deliver God's people, his third charge is brought against Jesus. Now we know this to be true. But Jesus' accusers, they misunderstood his true purpose as the Messiah king. He didn't come to overthrow 
Rome and to restore Israel. No, he came to bring about the kingdom of God. Then even after Jesus answers in a way that gives permission for these charges to be credible, Pilate believes Jesus to be innocent. Unfortunately, the Jewish leaders continue to find any reason they can to condemn Jesus. Unable to find a reason himself, Pilate sends Jesus to Herod for further examination, thinking that the guy called the Tetrarch of Galilee will have insight into a case involving a Galilean. So then we meet Herod. You might know him as the guy who placed John the Baptist in prison and then later had him beheaded. Again, not a nice dude. Um, in Luke 9, verse 7 to 9, we also uh, hear that Herod expressed a desire to see Jesus. And then in chapter 13, verse 31, we learn that he wants Jesus dead. One of his, uh, someone tells Jesus to get out of there because Herod's going to go, Herod's coming after him. He wants him dead. So Luke's been building this scene. It's been anticipated, this meeting between these two people. Herod's been against those uh, with a divine aim, and now he seeks a sign, assumingly to trap Jesus, or at least to test him. Ironically, though, Herod, while Herod is devoting this time to sign-seeking and interrogation, but in doing this, he fails to see the revelation of Jesus' identity and his status before God that's being proclaimed by the Jewish leaders around him. They're accusing him of being the Messiah. Herod misses this. Herod joins the many prophets and the many kings who desired God's revelation but proved incapable of seeing or hearing it. Joins a long history of people. And then for no apparent reason, other than pressure from the Jewish leadership, Herod joins in the scorning of Jesus before returning him to Pilate. Till this point, Pilate and Herod, they were enemies. But we learn in Acts 4 that the foundation of their friendship is this hostility towards Jesus. Herod is as responsible as Pilate for Jesus' death, for he found him not guilty, yet apparently it didn't occur to him to release Jesus himself as he had the power to do so. He's a high-ranking Roman official. He could have said, no, Jesus, you're all good, off you go. But he didn't, now did he? So, is Jesus guilty of being a king? Well, absolutely. He's God's chosen Messiah who rules the nations for all time. However, he's not guilty of subverting the nation. Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Jesus' allegiance is not to an evil set of leaders, but to God and to his people. Friends, how are we like the Roman rulers? Jesus is mocked with an elegant, elegant robe, which is a specific and ironic reference to his claim to royalty. Although Pilate and Herod side against the Jewish leaders in declaring Jesus to be innocent, they also side with the Jewish leaders in their refusal to recognize Jesus' true identity as the ruler, the king over God's people. How often are we, like the Roman rulers, in our blatant refusal to accept Jesus' kingship in our lives? Are you living in sin that you consciously pursue and practice knowing it's not the way God desires you to live? For me, I'm constantly battling the comforts of this world which seek to draw me away from 
knowing and loving and serving Jesus. I spend far too much time in front of screens, wasting time that I know I could be using in a way that honours God. Like Paul, I know the good I ought to do, yet I don't do it. Friends, I want to ask, where are you living in conscious sin that refuses Jesus' kingship? Point three. Jesus is trialled by the Jewish people, reading from verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and he said to them, you brought, me to this, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. For the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Is Jesus deserving of death? Does the punishment fit the crime? The final phase of Jesus' trial is a tale of two opposing wills. On the one hand, you have Pilate, who desires to release Jesus. On the other, the fulfilled desire of the Jewish people and their leaders to see him executed. For the first time in this narrative, the people are brought together with, the Jeru- with Jerusalem's elite. To punish or flog refers to a kind of lesser disciplinary action, um, and Pilate offers this to the crowd as an alternative to capital punishment so that he could win and maintain favour with the Jewish people. But Jesus was not, because Jesus was not found guilty of any charge. But the Jewish people decide to align themselves with someone that's quite out of character for the kind of people they desire to be, with a guy like Barabbas, over and against the innocent Jesus. These are the people that are supposed to be following God, of upstanding moral character, yet they'd rather align themselves with an insurrectionist and a murderer to get rid of Jesus. Isn't that wild? And then this is the first time in the narrative that Jesus' crucifixion is called for, and this is a punishment that's reserved by the Romans only for those who resist the authority of Roman occupation. Pilate has to act in order to ultimately alleviate a riotous mob, but in in, in doing this he preserves peace for himself rather than promoting justice. Pilate gives in to the shouts of the crowd, committing a perversion of justice. So, is Jesus deserving of death? Well, absolutely not. He's innocent. There's one thing that's clearer than anything else in the accounts of the trial of Jesus. It's the innocence of the prisoner. However, 
Despite his innocence, Pilate, despite Jesus' innocence, Pilate gives in to the shouts of the crowd. He condemns Jesus to death. Which leads to our next question. How are we like the crowd and like Pilate? Throughout this narrative, Jesus' silence, as I've said, is contrasted with the kind of aggressive language of the Jewish people and their leaders. And it's surprising that the crowds are not supporting Jesus because we know that they have been aligned with him prior to this moment. They've flocked to places where he is to hear him preach, to try and touch him, to be healed. But the Jewish leaders, they've stirred up the crowds and put pressure on Pilate. He wants to maintain favour with the people in order to keep his power and status. Friends, whose voice is loudest in your own life? Who are you listening to that is turning you away from Jesus? Is it the voice of non-Christian family or friends who think you're crazy for following Jesus? Is it the media who think that Christianity is irrelevant? We're living in a secular society. We don't need Jesus. Or is it someone else? Are you more like the crowd, perhaps, joining in the public discourse of condemnation against Jesus, pressuring those around you to live in rebellion to Jesus, even though you know that's not how you're supposed to live? You actively promote a sinful lifestyle. For me, too often I listen to my own self-doubt and criticism. I listen to my own sinful self. And I tell myself that I'm not a good Christian. I'm not doing a good job following Jesus. And that is sacrifice wasn't sufficient for me, which is just garbage. I need to listen to the words of Scripture that tell me I am forgiven, that God is working in me day by day by his Spirit. Friends, who do you need to stop listening to? Start listening to Jesus. Open his word. Spend time with your brothers and sisters around you who God has given you to encourage us, to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, to follow him. So, is Jesus guilty as charged? Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Jesus' trial is a perversion of justice. He was not guilty of sin and treason against God, but he is guilty of being the Son of God and Messiah King. Ironically, throughout the the trial, Jesus is asked in front of multiple audiences if he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And this provides us with an indirect testimony of what we already know, that Jesus is more than just a prophet and a king. He is the one true royal prophet and king over God's people, the Messiah, the Son of God. The the tragic yet amazing irony of this passage is that the purposes of God are brought about, are brought to completion by the very ones who most adamantly oppose it and resist that purpose. God is in control. Isn't it incredible how God uses the worst situation to bring about the redemption and restoration of his people? The worst situation, and God redeems us with it. It's amazing. Speaking of that, there is one character we haven't spent a whole lot of time on yet who I think illustrates this point well. That's where we'll finish our time today. Our passage ends with Jesus being wrongly condemned to death. Barabbas, a man 
actually guilty of trying to overthrow the authorities and murdering people, is set free while Jesus is condemned to death. Friends, how are we like Barabbas? I want to address two groups of people in the room to close up. Firstly, to those who trust in Jesus, to those who call themselves Christians. Barabbas is a foreshadowing of what is to come on the cross. Jesus became guilty for us. He took our place. He is our substitute. Barabbas, who, like us, is guilty and deserving of punishment, deserving of death, he received grace while Jesus received the condemnation. And if this is the case, we know this to be true, why do we as Christians not live like we've received grace? Why do we live like the Jewish leaders, trying to earn our salvation, earn our standing before God? This Easter, I encourage you, friends, to live in the grace that Jesus offers you. Behold the King of Grace, as your series uh, encourages us to. Rediscover this grace. Rest in it. We all need to be evangelized too. We all need to hear the gospel every single day. You probably, a lot of you have probably heard the message of Jesus' death and resurrection hundreds of times, and it's still good news. Don't, don't let it get old and stale. It is the best news in the world, and it is grace. And when you live in grace, then you start to bear the fruit of grace to others around you. So th- over the next week, marvel in that grace. Spend time in the scriptures with your brothers and sister, your brothers and sisters in Christ talking about that grace, enjoying it, worshipping God for it. Secondly, I want to speak to those who don't trust Jesus, who people who wouldn't call themselves Christians. Perhaps you've been at this church for a while, and maybe it's your first night, and I just want to say I'm so glad you're here. I'm so, so glad that you came tonight. Jesus invites you to come and receive grace. What is grace? It's God's undeserved love and his forgiveness for those who put their trust in him. When you put your trust in him, you receive grace, relationship with God. If that is you, you, or if you have questions about that, talk to to someone in this room that is a Christian. Because I can tell you they will be able to testify to God's grace, receiving it, and being forgiven and having a relationship with God and then the work of grace in their own life because it is awesome. It is so, so good. How about I finish in prayer? Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank you for your graciousness to us in being condemned to death, death on a cross that you did not deserve Lord, we are the ones who are guilty, and yet you lavish your love and grace upon us. Help us to trust in you, Lord Jesus, to recognize your authority and identity in our own lives. You are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. Lord, help us to submit those areas of our lives to you that we know we're not following you in. Father, I pray that you you might help us, particularly over the next week, to worship you for your grace, to enjoy the grace, to rest in grace. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.